Before this episode of the Final Word Podcast, another quick update from our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. We are grateful for Brick Lane's support through the weekly episode, Storytime. Did you hear Daniel Norcross's wild 904 triumph? Are you kidding me? Start with Storytime 59 and then follow it up with Storytime 60. Totally worth it. And also, the daily episodes. Adam and Jeff have been super busy. You can find all of those, the daily episodes, wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can watch them on the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel. There are currently 23,000 subscribers. We'd love to get that to 25,000. So if you are not a subscriber to the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel, please stop by, check it out, and if you like it, subscribe, and then you'll never miss a video. In cricket, there are great partnerships. Podcasting is no different. It's the partnership between the show, Adam and Jeff, the sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing, and you, the listener. I'd use your name, but I don't know who you are, but thank you. In addition to subscribing to the YouTube channel, please check out Brick Lane Brewing on Instagram and Facebook. Say hello and tell them the final word sent you. You can order all your Brick Lane favorites at bricklanebrewing.com. It's a super easy way to get your hands on all of the various brews. Brick Lane Brewing, based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia. Great city, great beer. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of the final word. And as always, thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and the final word. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. It's the final word, story time. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. It's a revisit show. It's story time number 78. We are recording this on a Monday afternoon, my time in London. It's Tuesday <laughs> at 2.30 in the morning at Jeff's time. Such are our commitments at the moment. It's not as though there's anything else going on in cricket right now, Jeff, that we need to talk about no. in great length. There's no, there's nothing that's sort of that people are saying, why haven't you recorded an episode yet about the Justin Langer news? And we're like, no, we must. We must deliver episodes in the order that they are in our spreadsheet. And the next episode Mm -hmm. is the one that we uh, didn't get out last week uh, because of uh, your commitments at the Women's Ashes, which is this story time. And then we'll come back to the weekly show tomorrow where I promise, I promise we will talk for a long time about Langer and all the politics of that. But now we have to go back to the history of the game. It's only proper. May I say, we have we have talked about Justin Langer on Storytime before. Usually it's in relation to him making a triple hundred for Somerset, <laughs> you know, in, in 2007 yes. or whatever it was. But, you know, he, he comes up. Look, we'll, we'll get back to the... We'll, we'll have the weekly show when it comes. But right now it's very important that we talk about some 1930s cricketers for an hour. And the way we're going to do this, so I mentioned that it's a revisit show. You might recall, if you're an ardent listener to The Final Word, that last year, probably around October, November, we knocked off mm-hmm. about... 30 revisits in two weeks because, uh, well, let's be honest, your clues are getting harder and harder, which means it takes longer and longer to solve them and often takes two or three swings to get to the finish line. So we do have a backlog of these to clear from the last two or three months or thereabouts. Probably about 25 numbers to go. It's going to be a lot of fun. There's some great stories here. Uh, And then when we record the next story time, we'll back into the new numbers and and the other um, re-ups that you've sent through in the last four or five months or thereabouts. Two or three swings to get to the finish line is a very interesting sport. I, I feel that you're channeling some biathlon into <laughs> in that particular well, analogy. The sort of sport where you run 100 metres and then and then have a, a swing at a baseball pitch and then run another 100 metres, yeah. something like that. We can, we can create that. I've just been doing, well, we've both done the Winter Olympics today for the Guardian. Um, you were doing it at, at one extreme of the day there in Beijing and me at the other. I was doing short track speed skating 20 years on from uh, the Steve Bradbury night was the same event tonight, the 1,000 metres, which ended in 
like you know, the guy ran the perfect race or ran skated the perfect race in the final only to get chalked off in the final metre of the race, he was seen to have changed lanes. I mean, how stiff's that? 990 perfect metres and and one errant knee, and, and that's it. Your Olympic dream's over. So the Hungarian uh, went down and also doing the curling at the same time. So two extremes of winter sports, uh, short course mm-hmm. speed or short track speed skating, which is just helter-skelter. Then then the curling semi-final between Norway, the, <laughs> the married couple from Norway and the Scottish pair who, who botched it after leading comfortably and choked at the end so anyway that that's our time at the moment the fastest people on ice and the slowest people on ice that's it <laughs> together at last but <laughs> no no probably no winter olympics um in our stories today but i don't know i don't really know what you've got I've been i mean my numbers you've been working on yours <laughs> I couldn't rule it out there's some pretty um there's some pretty tangential stuff here although i think we've got most of the answers correct so we, i think we've spoken to most people before submitting an answer today so i have faith that um, these will be fairly close to the marks but it, but it could include olympics chat who's today i feel confident uh, all right so this is gonna this is all based around the game called nerd pledge which is also nerd pledge depending you know how excited or how late at night it is when we're recording the show it's it's a game that we play with the people on our patron page they fund the show they send us contributions those contributions are not the round numbers that you might expect on a note or a coin they're they're very specific numbers because the numbers relate to cricket in some way and we have to work out what the relationship is for instance $14.45 was an amount sent to us by Terry Hogan who is not featured in that song by Franz Ferdinand as previously discussed what this means is we had a go at 14.45 we tried to work out what it meant we didn't get what it meant and so Terry's had to send us further clues, and this is what a revisit show is all about. It's about trying to solve the numbers. But this one, mercifully, was solved for us. The original clue was not since Faisalabad, which is a city in Pakistan. I looked at a lot of things that had happened in cricket in Faisalabad, but I didn't get this one. I think this must have been one that you had to live through, and, and I'm a few years too young to have taken this into my subconscious in the same way as it did for El Presidente Dale F. Adams, who wrote us a message, and thank God he did, because otherwise this might have been a very long time to try to solve. The president said, I suspect that the 1445 relates to the time that passed between Alan Border's 23rd and 24th test centuries, 1,445 days, <laughs> according to timeanddate.com and allowing for time zones <laughs> between Faisalabad and Australia. It's good. It's a six-hour time difference that could throw things off, you know, but I suppose if you'd wrapped up at, say, 6.30pm at the end of a test day, it might have been into the next day in Australia. The president says uh, the press got a bit obsessed with it at the time and the line, not since Faisalabad in 1988, started to reach the levels of, did you know Steve Smith started out as a leg spinner? <laughs> uh, it gets a run in, in Roland Fishman's book about the 91 tour to the West Indies, which I have tucked away in a box somewhere and read a few too many times as a teenager, <laughs> uh, especially those spicy pages, um, Dale. I'm sure, I'm sure they kept you up at night. But I would never have got that. I think I could have, this is one of these ones I could have sweated over for a year. It was 1,445 days between hundreds and Terry is, is channeling the zeitgeist of, of the 80s by saying, not since Faisalabad and finally AB 
broke the drought with his 24th. And not since Saturday, uh, uh, since I've been talking about that Roland Fishman book to somebody at Dulwich Hamlet. There you go. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, and also, I, I use that, that days between dates uh, engine all the time myself. It's one of those sort of, I don't know, it's, it's, it's an easy intro when you get to the end of play and it's been a long time since something's happened. You can jump on there and, and find a big number and, and that'll be the, the start of your piece uh, that evening uh, in the press box. So um, uh, I'm glad that that's where... President Dale F. Adams went as well. So 14.45, Terry Hogan, let us know. Was it AB between his 23rd and 24th tonne? Uh, Jeffrey Gabriel is next cab off the rank for us today. 6.04 was his number. We had an original clue, Jeff, that was... This was so cryptic. Yeah. This was was a mouthful. We talked about Peter Carroll, Peter Roebuck, Carlton players, all around this idea of a blue bagger who'd achieved a double blue. And Jeff, I think you did the original answer on this, didn't you? And I, I was went, looking uh, at uh, Oxford and Cambridge players mm. who might have also played for New South Wales. Um, but that's right. That didn't work out, and that and that's why I picked it up with the Carlton players who who might have played for the you know, played uh, you know South Australian football for the Double Blues and then came over. I mean, you know, we tried things, right? But none of them quite came to fruition. But this was solved by Humphrey B. Bear on Hawk headquarters, who sent me a DM back in. December, and I only read it last week. Humphrey B. Bet, so can't talk but can type. Can't, can't talk <laughs> but can type. Put some, put some pants on, Humphrey. Uh, my suspicion is you guys were on the wrong track with Sturt FC for the 604 about blue baggers. It's easy for those of us from Sydney. On a show where you mentioned rugby league and nicknames prior to this, they were the key. I thought the answer was Graham Hughes, and I checked. He scored 604 runs for New South Wales. Jewel Blue, he played cricket and rugby league for New South Wales. Nickname Heap. Uh, three Pete. Uh, he was one of the three brothers who played in an NRL premiership for Canterbury. And his grade cricket club in Sydney was Petersham. Nicknamed Pete's. So there's a few things there from Humphrey B. Bear on Hawk headquarters that almost certainly solves it. Graham Hughes and the 604 runs he, he made for New South Wales, but his rugby league commitments too. Humphrey, trousers off, uh, attention on, laser focus, uh, got every part of that clue if you go back to the episode where the 604 first came up. So those are two numbers that other people solved for us. Let's get into some that we solved for ourselves. Brian Stratford, $3.86. I had a bunch of goes at this. I tried everything. I had no idea, so I threw a bunch of stuff at it. It didn't work. Yes, and it was a subsequent clue that Brian sent through. The number relates to a total number of runs scored by a unique team in a unique competition. Now, there is some significance if you had been solving it during the summer of 2022. If you know my areas, that would be a clue too. I had a stab at this and got nowhere near it. I can't wait to see where you went. Well, I know Brian's areas, um, as do you, Ireland. Mm. Ireland is, is uh, you know, not just an island, but the Ireland is, is Brian's. A cricketing area of enthusiasm. We've had things about Ireland playing NatWest trophy games in the 80s, like all kinds of niche stuff here. And so that's originally where I, what I was thinking. I was like, did they play in a self-contained competition that didn't get repeated, a la a sort of Ryobi, Mercantile Mutual, ING, FAI Insurance Cup sort of thing that got renamed after a year? Couldn't find anything about that. I was thinking about 2022. I thought, is there an anniversary? Do we look at, say, 1982? And maybe it's 40 years later. Um, there was a match that Ireland played against Scotland in 1982 where they scored 390 runs across two innings but not 386 runs. Uh, So that was close. 
And I was racking my brains thinking self-contained tournament and I thought summer of 2022, that's the English summer, the Commonwealth Games ah, is coming up in the summer good. of 2022. And as we know, Steve Waugh, silver medalist at the Commonwealth Games, uh, we from, from relishing that great moment of national pride, we know that cricket was played in Kuala Lumpur in 1998 when the Australians were wearing those salmon sort of salmon and grey outfits that, that looked so imposing in, in the salon, I imagine, when they were being designed. Maybe not so flash out in the middle, but the Commonwealth nations were there, so it wasn't all the test nations as they were because some of them get broken up. So Barbados were playing, Antigua and Barbuda were playing not as West Indies because that's not a country per se. And it meant that the Irish couldn't play because Ireland is not part of the Commonwealth, but Northern Ireland is. Northern Ireland is. The Northern Irish cricket team played in the Commonwealth Games in 1998. They made 120 against Barbados. They were 89 for five after 38 overs against South Africa when it rained and put them out of their misery. And then they made 177 against Bangladesh and bowled them out for 63. Bear in mind, this is a year before Bangladesh produced the upsets at the World Cup and get test status, you know, two years down the track. So they get absolutely pumped by Northern Ireland. All up, these are the only three list A matches ever played by Northern Ireland and indeed the only other game that I could ever find played by a team named as Northern Ireland was a two-day washout that didn't even get to the toss in 1950 against Worcestershire when they went on a tour of Ireland. So the only other time Northern Ireland played, they didn't get on the park. So not just in the Commonwealth Games, in the entire history of Northern Ireland cricket, they have played these three matches in which they made 386 runs, which is Brian's number of 386. And that's brilliant. In all of the time I've, I've covered Irish cricket, I had no idea they went to the Com Games uh, in 98. Great work, Jeff. There, there should be a lot Long read on that. Maybe, Jeff, you can you can get stuck into that between now and when the Commonwealth Games are held uh, later this year. Uh, next up here, we have 421. Uh, this is from Kumar. Now, 421, we looked at Sean Pollock because, of course, he took 421 test wickets. Jeff, you went through every possible way this could relate to Mashrafa Mortaza, wasn't it? There was there was a sense that something happened with a milestone with Pollock that related to Mortaza. He hit a six. He hit a six off Mortaza to raise a milestone. That's it. That's but, it. But this was but the only time he ever hit a six against Bangladesh was in a game where he made thirty eight. Yes, that's it. So so the additional clue from Kumar that got me into the answer was that I needn't be looking for Sean Pollock playing for South Africa, and that's when I stumbled upon the, the June two thousand and seven games between the Africa. African 11 and the Asian 11 in Bangalore, which had, of course, one day international status, Mm -hmm. naturally, some fucking exhibition tournament. But Pollock was playing in one of these as a specialist batsman down at number seven, and he rattled off 130. It was his highest score in one day international cricket. It was the highest score by a batsman in one day in that position until later in the series when MS Dhoni made more than 130 (laughs) uh, playing for the Asian team batting as a specialist bat uh, at number seven. In the case of Pollock, he came in when the score was 5 for 31, chasing 318, got loads of lower order support and got them to 283. So they still lost by 25 runs or whatever it is. But he faced 110 balls, hit 19 fours and won six. That was the six off Mortaza to bring up the century. And Kumar also mentioned a bizarre dismissal. And that was in, in the same game. He was there. He was there watching in Bangalore. And that was Steve Ticolo, the former Kenyan captain, who, who was out hit wicket with his front foot 
hitting the stumps, which if you think about it, is quite an odd way. I mean, you can think about your back foot hitting the woodwork when pushing off for a run, but how does your front foot end up hitting the stump? Well, it did for Steve Tekelo uh, on that particular day. So, yeah, I mentioned before that all had one day international status. It was Pollock's only one day. Tani made a couple at test level, uh, and of course he took 393 one day wickets, 421 in test cricket, which is Kumar's number. This is not going to become a Tekelo podcast. If I can uh, just make a dollar for reference there. Um, uh, how are you so flexible that your front foot can hit the stumps? I'm just – hang on. So you hit the ball to cover. Yes, according to front, the match report. I had, I had a look at the match report. The ball got hit to cover and he somehow managed to, like, be so off balance that, he, that his front foot went backwards at the point of contact. <laughs> Very. It's like doing a John Cleese silly walk while yes. playing cricket. Okay. Bizarre. But I'm glad you found it because that was really bothering me that I, I couldn't work out this non-milestone milestone. I was like, Sean Pollock raising 2,300 one-day runs was was, <laughs> was the, 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 the straw that I was grasping at at one point. Um, so that's Kumar's number. Uh, Sam Ashworth came through with uh, yes. £4.14. Now, I thought I was quite clever here because this was um, uh, Sam's often got a Lancashire Yep. Connection, and I thought four fourteen was a Macram took four hundred and fourteen test wickets, overseas star for Lanks, easy yep. open and shut, but it was wrong, bloody hell. Yeah, that's right. We, we kind of went into all the all the detail of why Waz was a, a Lanks legend, and and Sam, who has had Blackpool numbers for us before, hasn't he? Not just Lancashire, but specifically Blackpool, uh, said, "You are right to think my number has a Lanks connection, but it wasn't Wazim. My number actually refers to a pair of players who have a fair bit in common with each other, but differ in a significant way to all of my previous pledges." Over to you. Mm, okay, so two players from Lancashire with a lot in common who differ <coughs> to previous pledges. Uh, how about Alex Hartley and Kate Cross, ah. both from Lancashire? Yep. Uh, they differ in that all of Sam's previous pledges have been blokes. I was sort of rattling around with this and I sent Sam a message and said, give, give me a nudge, and he said, they're both in Australia. And I was like, all right, okay, now, now I know what's happening here. Both of them played Lancashire cricket in the years before 2010. Kate Cross breaks through for England in 2013. Alex Hartley in 2016 after Mark Robinson took over as coach and wanted to get some newer, younger players in. Interesting intertwining stories, lots of ups and downs. Um, Kate Cross did that great interview with us and she's spoken in a bunch of other forums at different times about mental health struggles and, and trying to reconcile that as a professional athlete and all of the rest of it. Hartley had the high of winning the World Cup in 2017 and then having her international career tailing off. Cross missed that World Cup which was very tough, didn't get to play but is still playing now and, and he's sort of he's going from strength to strength for England as well. But the two of them stick together. They do the No Balls podcast that a lot of people listen to um, and then ending up at the Manchester Originals in in the 100, which was one of the really nice things about the 100 was seeing those two getting to play and, and enjoy it. So I was like, all right, this has got to be it. It's these two, 4-1-4. Now, how do I tie this together? Alex Hartley's best T20 bowling performance was 4 for 14. Bang. Nothing for Kate Cross. Couldn't f- I chopped the numbers. I turned them upside down. I looked around, nothing there. And I went back to Sam and said, what's going on? And he said, think about someone else. And I went, bloody hell. It's Sophie Eccleston, isn't it? She uh-huh. took four for 14 in a one-dayer. And she is, of course, a left-arm spinner whose rise um, supplanted Alex Hartley. So they're, they're twinned in a slightly uncomfortable way, I suppose. But um, also from that part of the country, also from up north, 
uh, it's producing a lot of England cricketers. Yeah, they both made their international uh, debut against Pakistan back in uh, 2016. It was Eccleston in the in the T20s and Hartley in the one days. And yeah, sort of uh, Eccleston wasn't available for that World Cup that you referred to before because she was doing her her A levels and she wanted to finish school first before becoming a professional cricketer. All three of them are playing uh, Manchester Originals together with Cross the captain and of course um, Alex and Kate live together as well uh, in Manchester. Their housemates. So um, when they're I suppose they don't spend much time with each other, though, do they? Because um, Kate's routinely in some bio bubble or another with England, and Alex is now travelling the world as a as a commentator. So, yep, good one, nice one, Sam Ashworth for four one four, as he says, a nice spin on his theme. Declan Lawler, friend of the show, Declan Lawler, he sent through six twenty eight. I went into Betty Wilson's performance on Testaboo, which was six for twenty eight back. I think it was in 1948, 1949, something like that. Declan said, "My." Pledge is actually about 1A Collins. I'm living in Bristol, home to Clifton College, and this is the scene of the particular story. And Jeff, I've got to say, I went on to read an article uh, that that Declan linked me to, to to pull this all together, which was written by the school. I had no knowledge of this whatsoever, and I'm glad that I had the chance to to spend 15 minutes looking at it. So this relates to a, a kid, and he was a kid, by the name of Arthur Edward Jern. And Collins, spelt Jern as in uh, the way the 1995 Melbourne Cup winner uh, was spelt. He was a 13-year-old boy. It means yellow, doesn't it, in French? Uh, yeah, I, I don't remember. I remember the... Um I remember the silks that, were, that he was wearing, but I don't remember what, what the word meant in French when, when winning the uh, when winning the Melbourne Cup. Won the Geelong Cup it, was the last horse registered, right? Then won the Melbourne Cup a couple of weeks later. I think it's a I think it's a Latin root like jaundice, right? Like that 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 means you look yellow when you you know when you have jaundice, your skin goes ah, yellow. Okay, all right, all right. Well, A. E. J. Collins was a student at Clifton College, and as I say, they they wrote up this innings on their website, really lovely write up too, and he held the record for the highest score in cricket for 116 years. Jeff, you and I have spent a lot of time downplaying what happened in India in January 2016 when when the school kid made a thousand. Well, it's a little bit harder to repudiate when this kid made 628 not out, as we're about to detail, because there's so much about it. There's a lot of detail here. So Arthur was born in India and moved to Bristol to study with his family in 1897. He had bright blue eyes, uh, so it was said. And the match was an intra-school game between the Clark's house and the North Town house on the junior school field that started on the 22nd of June, 1899. So that's just one week before that test match that we've talked about many many times at Knotts where uh, Wilfred Rhodes played test cricket for the last time. Trumper made his debut and it was the last test uh, that WG Grace captain. That all happened uh, in, within a week of each other. Well, no surprise because North Townhouse, they always try to walk it in. You know, that's one thing you can say about that too. <laughs> well, actually, it, it, the fact that it's in Bristol, I didn't, I didn't think this when going through it, but, you know, that's where WG was, was doing his best. Probably not by 1899. He was, he was playing for um, uh, that London County that he set London up um, by then, but, but Still, that's where he started and played his best cricket. Anyway, we'll move on. So, it's easier to cheat when you're running your own cricket club. Yeah, isn't it? yeah, somewhat. Uh, um, he, he had 200 by the end of the first afternoon, uh, and not many of them uh, were, were boundaries either. Most of them were all run, just to, by the way that it's set up. But what I say by the end of the first afternoon, the feature of this innings is that they're squeezing these hours of play in and around their their study commitments. So this game continues onto the next day. He reaches 300, then 400. The press start rocking up. Next went the school record, 404 not out. He was dropped in the 400s. It's the first time he'd been put down since giving 
three chances reportedly in his first 100 runs. On to day three, and he passes A.E. Stoddard's highest score, which of course was the world record to that point, 485 not out from 1886, a score that we've talked about many times, uh, both on Storytime and in our, in our live shows. So we're up to late on day two by this stage, half past five, when he reaches 509 not out. Had the weekend back at home with his family in Devon, then returned to school on Monday afternoon. What a life as a student, by the way, playing cricket on Thursday afternoon, Friday afternoon, back to his parents. More cricket on Monday, so more batting to do. Made 89 further runs on that third day. Uh, by this point, they, they only had two... I think I think the day one and day two, they gave them three hours each. It was like out of term or something. But on day three, they were only getting an hour or so to bat. He made 89 runs in that hour, taking him close to 600. Then came back onto the Tuesday where they extended the hours of the game, realising they were, they were seeing something pretty special. They wanted to get a result. The number 11 hung around and gave him enough time to reach 600, 628 to be precise. They put on 106 for the last wicket. Of course, he, he carried his bat. Six hours and 45 minutes in the middle all up across those four days. One six, four fives, 31 fours, 33 threes, 146 twos and 86 singles. Then the opposition went out to bat and on this fourth and final day, uh, they had time to bowl him out for 87 and then 61 following on. And of course, what did Arthur Collins do? Took 11 wickets to, to complete the innings <laughs> and 688 run victory. And then it was said that when it was all over, he simply went back to class for afternoon lessons. So um, fame tragically didn't follow, nor did a professional career. I mean, he was 13 years of age then in 1899, but uh, uh, he joined the military uh, in 1914, went to France. And, and was shot dead on the 11th of November 1914, so four years before the armistice. And it re- remained the, the highest score in any cricket until uh, the one that knocked it off, uh, the Indian kid who made uh, over 1,000. I say the Indian kid dismissively only because, Jeff, you've gone into this in, in some depth before and, and long-term listeners to the show will know the standing that you hold that innings in. But this feels like it has, has a bit more to it uh, that of A.E.J. Collins in June 1899. 628 not out. Thanks, Declan. Pranav Dhanavade was uh, was the maker of a thousand and nine, um, but yeah, it, look, he was a fifteen year old beating up twelve year olds. Whereas at least this was a twelve year old beating up twelve year olds, yeah. presumably. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah. I mean, either I, way, you still got to get him. I, I missed one bit there, by the way. He did play one game at Lords. So he joined the military. I think before he joined the military, he had the chance to play at Lords because obviously he's a posho, right? Like, there's no way of avoiding that when you hear the story I've just told. Then a wealthy kid or wealthy family, and he did get a chance to play there once at Lords, but obviously it wasn't in a professional game and yeah that was before he he went away and if he died in November 1914 Jeff he must have been one of the the very first servicemen killed in France because they didn't go out there until I think they went out there in October 1914 September October if I recall correctly Mm. so end of end of end of August when wars declare yeah but they take a while get the expeditionary force going yeah so um they wouldn't have been over there for at least a at least a month. Yeah, mm. so a sad, a sad end to that story, but yeah, no one can ever take away that wonderful piece of history there at Bristol. 628. All right, next number, uh, 588 from Max Heaton. That's what you say when you turn the thermostat up. Time for some Max Heaton. Um, we talked about Sonny Ramadan bowling 588 balls in Edge uh, at Edgebaston in 1957. 
Uh, Max said it may be worth mentioning that my number concerns a single batsman's innings of some note and the other related number I've already mentioned is 117 or should it be 1 brackets 17? Ah, of course. Disgusted that I didn't see this the first time around. 1 from 17 balls. I didn't even need to look this up. I was like, I know who made one from 17 balls. (laughs) Jack Leach made one from 17 balls. At Headingley in 2019, you might have heard of this game. People talk about it a bit. Uh, Yes, yes. uh, Did his job, stuck around. It was no Brisbane 2021. What does the other number mean, though? How does 588 Mm. relate to Jack Leach and Ben Stokes at Headingley? The miracle at Headingley. Did England go at 5.88 runs per over? No, they did not. They went at 2.88 runs per over, remembering that they batted very slowly through the, that to the end of that third day. And Stokes was was he 52 balls before scoring, or was he three from 52? I think, it was, or something yeah, like I th- that? I think he went to bed at. Oh, I think when Root gets out, he's three from 70 odd or something like that. And he and he was yep. he batted out the last 10 overs the previous night as well. Yeah, yeah, he he bet he was. I reckon he was 50. Two by stumps and then had faced another chunk in the morning before Root got out yep. pretty early. Thereabouts. So what about near the end? Did they go at five point eight eight? No, they went at eight and a half and over just about after Chopper Archer got out. So not there. Uh, deliveries face seven hundred and fifty four in the innings, not five hundred and eighty eight, but then took it back to simplicity. One from seventeen balls is a strike rate of five point eight eight. Yes. Runs. Her ball. And do you want to know something else that maybe Max Heaton didn't know when he put this number in? Guess who else made one off 17 balls a week later at Manchester in the fourth innings? Ben Stokes. <laughs> got out and couldn't save the test match. Really? Wasn't was it quite as... I, I'd never picked up on that. And I'm no. surprised nobody else had either. But Leach, one of 17 at Headingley. Stokes, one of 17 at Old Trafford. Uh, one of them more celebrated than the others, shall we say. I, I'd, I'd stash that away, Jeff. That's an intro for you when uh, Australia are in England in, in 2023. So I tell you, next year, bloody hell. Is, the Ashes are in England next year. That oh, can't be right. I, know. I just I just realised that about a week ago when someone was saying, like, why are there still Ashes happening? And I was like, there's another one in 14 months. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. We shouldn't, we shouldn't um, <laughs> be too stop. grumpy because it obviously means a lot of work for us. But on the other side of it, it's like, really, again? Well, uh, when that does come around, you can write a piece about Leach and Stokes and talk yeah. about the symmetry there, I'm sure. Uh, thank you, Max Heaton. Uh, by the way, uh, we're having that fight at the moment because it's still winter over here and Rachel is working at home and I'm working at home and I always want to put the Max Heaton up and Rach, fair to say, thinks that I'm a fucking soft cock and should suck it up and put a jumper on. And we have this war, ongoing battle where I'm going to the thermostat and turning it up and she is simply, in that passive-aggressive way, turning it straight down. <laughs> it's just back and forth <laughs> all day long. Welcome to my you household. Don't snuggle with Max Heaton. <laughs> you strap in and feel the degrees. <laughs> Righto, next up, Dwayne Holloway, 143. Uh, Louise says something a long, long, long time ago and so long ago that we weren't keeping proper records then. So it's obviously there's no statute of limitations. We always say that about Nerd Pledge and Storytime, but we couldn't find it. So I don't know what we said. What Wayne came back to us with, though, was a clue, uh, a sentence, which simply read, when Dennis ascended and took the crown from Lance, there I was slowly trudging off. Uh, I liked this. This was a really good clue. And it gave me the chance to look back at some 
excellent footage on YouTube as well. And also uh, familiarised myself with something I didn't, I didn't quite realise about that week at Melbourne in 1981. So Dennis ascending and taking the crown from Lance. I'm thinking that's when Lily goes past Lance Gibbs's 309 test wickets in 1981. So that we all remember uh, you know, last ball of the day. You know, West Indies 4 for 10 after Kim Hughes's magnificent unbeaten century off 200 balls and, and all the rest of it. What I didn't quite put together was that the next day is when Dennis Lilly breaks the world record. For whatever reason, I, I kind of thought that... I mean, I knew it was against the West Indies, but I just didn't group the two things together. And the player he dismisses is Larry Gomes, and I'll, I'll come to Gomes in a moment, but that, that great piece of commentary, uh, Greg Chappell's got it, uh, that is the record, and, 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 uh, and Benno uh, really giving it big uh, by his standards. And I remember as a kid, and I, and I can't find this, but on the Commonwealth Bank Cricket Academy tape, so he takes the world record wicket, and then I think they, I think they play waltzing Matilda over the P system and sing the national anthem as well like to recognise that there's been this moment of history at the MCG incredible scenes, I couldn't find it on YouTube but I'm pretty certain uh, that was one of the clips they used in that Commonwealth Bank tape that I watched, you know, a hundred times a hundred, a thousand times when I was growing up that I referred to all the time with Ian Chappell teaching me how to bat and all the rest of it so I love that, I mean A, would anyone have known the national anthem at that point? I'm pretty sure it had just come in if it was Advanced Australia Fair That's true, 1978, so yeah Three years before, yeah, that's right. Three years earlier, I reckon it was. I reckon it was waltzing Matilda. Day. I reckon they were playing waltzing Matilda through the PA system as he ran back to find leg at the end of the over. And, and that's very strong Australia areas. We're like, oh, one of our guys took the world record. Let's sing the song about stealing his sheep. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that always that always uh, makes me laugh when we sort of debate what might replace Advanced Australia Fair as the national anthem one day. And you always see that, oh, Waltzing Matilda, in the same way that you would see when we would have a, a more uh, a more in-depth conversation about who might become an Australian-born head of state, you know, around the 99 referendum, and we were actually talking about real names. Well, it'll be Eddie Maguire. Eddie Maguire will be the first head of state. What? what? Because he's, he's on telly. Because he's on telly. You hear this recently. Not I saw, yet he hasn't. I saw the Republican. Not yet he hasn't. Not, not yet he hasn't. I saw the Republican movement put out a, a position paper the other week saying that they support direct election. I think that's a good thing, them coming out and, and getting themselves some airtime around that. But the first thing I saw all over social media was people saying, well, that'll mean that Shane Warne will be president. I'm like, uh will it is that is that what that means uh is that what that means i don't Look, think it does if if we can take uh if we can take as the precedent the fact that glenn lazarus the brick with eyes got voted <laughs> into the senate as, as clive palmer's first senator then absolute walk-up start yeah yeah anyway so uh this, yeah okay, this is all the same week so lily actually was stuck on uh he was stuck on about 305 or something like that he played an entire test match at Melbourne earlier in the summer against Pakistan without taking a wicket. But he was at his absolute peak here. He took seven for 93 in the first innings. I think it was 11 for the match all up in that win over the West Indies. And Gomes' highest score uh, in test cricket was 143. He made that against England uh, in the first test of the 1984 5-0 thrashing. Uh, he was in at number three there, batting with Viv Richards, who made it a far pacier 117. But um, he got them to 606 and, and they won by an innings. It was one of two centuries and a man of a match award that he collected on that 84 tour. It was the peak of his career, really, uh, across 60 test matches, played between 1976 and, and 1987, averaged 49 centuries, six of those against Australia, which was no mean feat. Elegant, tall, slight, but bloody effective in that brilliant era. Larry Gomes, who was 
who was the man trudging off uh, when when Greg Chappell took that catch off Dennis Lilly at the MCG in in eighty one. Very good, Adam. Uh, Andrew Turner, five pound sixty seven. This one was. So you talked about Test match number five hundred and sixty seven. That's right. Uh, at Mumbai in sixty four, when Tiger Pataudi led a big win over the Australians. Uh, Andrew said something else, though. Yeah, he said it was a, a debut performance that he witnessed at Hampshire at an outground in the mid-90s uh, by the son of a more famous father and included one of the dad's former teammates as one of the victims. Well, we don't need to go too much further to find this. Liam Botham. I didn't actually know anything about Liam Botham, but born uh, from the loins of the Lord, the, the much publicised loins of the Lord in 1977. In 1977, you had to draw a picture and send that. No selfies. Um, and, and went on to... The, <laughs> you had, to had to do a woodcut, <laughs> do a lino print and Put send it, it in the mail. Pop, pop, it, pop it in one of those moles that you do when you get a, when you get a mouth guard. <laughs> Just throw, the, throw it down. Hold it, not for too long. If you hold it in there for too long, that could be problematic for other reasons. But, yeah, the mouth guard approach. Just, just trace around it on a sheet of paper. <laughs> on an exosketch. <laughs> and maybe, maybe do one of those nice macaroni collages like you do in art class with the PVA glue. <laughs> um, yeah. Born in 77 uh, and went on to debut for Hampshire two days after his 19th birthday, Liam Botham. Uh, they were playing Middlesex at the United Services Ground, which I had never heard of, in Portsmouth. Now, initially I thought, because services are where British people go to get sandwiches and things when they're driving somewhere on a motorway, so I was like, is it just, is there like a, you know, one of those, what's that like chain of shit hotels that's all across... Uh, oh god, we, we could we could rattle off a few, I suppose, but I know what you mean. It could have been like a a ground because you know sometimes at the side of a motorway, there's quite a bit of space devoted to having you know, well, whether it's people filling up lorries as we say here, or or um, stopping halfway to get a bite to eat. There could be a cricket ground at the back there. I see where you're going with it. Filling up the lorry in Ash, um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, but the United Services ground, it must have been to do with the military because one of the ends is called the Officers Club end. So um, that that stands to reason. So it's not where you get a sandwich. But looked into the history of the ground. There have been 336 first-class matches there, starting with the Australians of 1882. So they go all the way back. The Australians of 1882, by the way, played against the Cambridge past and present players. <laughs> And that match had, you wouldn't believe it, first-class status. Not World Series cricket. No, no, no. Not Dennis Lilly, Poland of Viv Richards. The Cambridge past and present players at the United Services ground in Portsmouth. Fuck. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. Liam Botham at that ground took five for 67 on debut. And it did oh. include uh, one of his dad's former teammates in Mike Gatting. But it also included Andrew... Another one, Phil Tufnell played three test matches with Ian Botham and Liam Botham got him out in this game. But he only played two more games for Hampshire, did Liam, took a couple more wickets, made 30 with the bat in his first game as well. And then I assume he got injured because in his third game he only bowled five overs and um, when he had been bowling a fair bit more than that. And then he was done. He quit cricket, started bugger it, went on to play rugby union. Yeah. I didn't know anything about this. Got into the England squad when they toured South Africa in 2000. So, like, not that long before they 
won the World Cup in 03 and then ended up playing professional rugby league as well for a few years. So a, a triple threat and these days I suppose is probably a paid advisor to the trade envoy to Australia presumably <laughs> because <laughs> that's how things work in England when you can get on the teat, get everybody you know on the teat. Get on the gravy train. Thank you, Andrew Turner. 567, I'm certain that'll be correct. Uh, next up, Jeff, we have 614. This is from Nikhil Venkatesh. Now, Jeff, the clue here originally was that 614 related to a nation's best player, and you rattled off about 10 of them, and we, we just couldn't quite square it. Like, it was obviously wasn't Andy Flower, and it wasn't sort of... There were other countries that had not sort of extensive time in test cricket for example I think you talked about Kevin O'Brien for Ireland or something like that and none of them quite tallied and it made sense once I dug a bit deeper so and Nikhil um, said none of the nations you mentioned are correct but there is a Derbyshire connection in fact his only first class team not sure how overseas status worked then to be honest though he did play and coach internationally not for England and I realised pretty quickly it's a player we've told the story of before uh, Ole Mortensen uh, who stand to his friends and, and his opponents I, I assume it has to be uh, the Danish superstar who played for Derbyshire between 1983 and, and 1994. Some say he was the, the fastest bowler in, in the world at times uh, through that stretch and he had that big front on action and the, the huge moustache to match and he was a Danish international from 1979. But going on with what you said before, none of them had first class status, which is surprising. I mean, now these days, those types of games would be seen as first class all this day. But Ole Mortensen, his only... Orle, I should say. His only um, uh, first-class and list-day games were for, for Derbyshire. Um, he, he took 63 at 10 for Denmark in what were known as ICC trophy games at the time, including 7 for 19 against uh, Israel uh, on one particular occasion. He had the chance to leave Derbyshire for money a couple of times, but uh, he loved the place, so he stayed. I, and I get it. I love Derby as well. If I, had, if I had a choice of playing for a county and like, living there day in, day out, I reckon Derby would be right up there for me. But yeah, he was kind of very much a fast bowler. He was nasty and sweary and, and all the rest of it. Loved by his teammates. He he also honed his game in, in the VSDCA, the subbies in Melbourne, the comp I, I used to play in against a, a team I played against a number of times. Brighton, uh, he won the Hatch Medal twice, which is like the league best and fairest uh, in the 80s and the 90s. He, he took all up 434 first-class wickets at 23. Outstanding by any measure. And why 614 to kill? Well, I assume it's because his best bowling in list day cricket it was 6 for 14 uh, and all up he took 219 at 25 at that level and nice to, to revisit an old Scott Oliver piece from 2012 that's when I first came across him and first came across Scott possibly as well and um, yeah we, we've had it put to us in the past that we should get Ole uh, onto the show it's probably not not a bad shout either Jeff he's a he's a school teacher in Denmark these days and I reckon it'd be quite fun uh, getting him on the show and and talking about what it was like to be a Danish cricketer uh, playing county cricket in the 80s and 90s. 434, Kapil Dev and Ole Mortensen together. Together for eternity. Uh, Blue Oyster Cult style. Uh, VJ sent in 207. Uh, now, there was some confusion about this because VJ also had a 241 that we answered on the New Year's Eve show. Then sent us a clue which I assumed applied to the 241 but it actually applied to the 207 because VJ didn't know that we'd done this second number Yes, and so I spent a long time trying to solve this for 241 which it was not for. Ah. Anyway... We've got here in the end, 207, originally you said, very creative answer, Adam, I liked it, was 207 was the number of balls faced by Chetashra Pajara at the SCG if you included the wides that were bowled to him. <laughs> good, 
creative thinking. Um, Vijay said no, it was an economy rate for my favourite bowler. The rate itself is not special, but the circumstances under which he generated it were. It was one of the rare games where all the players in a team bowled well. That does help narrow it down when you actually have the correct number, which eventually I did. So, 2002, India touring the caravan, batting first in Antigua. They're 235 for five when Anil Kumble comes in at number seven. He's, he's in good nick at this point, so they've they popped him up above the wicketkeeper and said, go in and, and have a go at seven. You know, he had a period of a few years where he was quite reliable as mm-hmm. a, a lower-order player with a bat. Merv Dillon has other ideas remember remember large merv the other the other big horse um, who, who would have that little mustache and would come steaming in and he banged in a bouncer and hit Kumble in the face and he he got out soon after did Kumble went to hospital had a broken jaw and it was like i think the jaw was cracked sort of up the chin like up the middle of his face and so two and up, right up between the teeth so two of his teeth had been separated and we're you know, it was basically coming apart. And India in this match have three quicks and he's the only spinner. So they just go, oh, just keep batting, just pits bat for as long as they can. So RJ Ratra, the wicketkeeper, makes 100. Uh, Laxman makes 100 and they keep going until they're nine down and eventually declare on 513. Windies, they're 120 for two. There's no spin option. So Sachin Tendulkar's bowling all of the spin. And he's ragging it. He's turning it a lot. And Kumble's watching in the sheds and he says, you know what, fuck it. <laughs> I need to bowl. <laughs> like, I need to get out there. So he gets the physio and the team, you know, they, they, they call the medical professionals who he's seen. They get, a, they get an opinion and they, they basically wired his jaw together anyway to stop it from moving around. Then they just mummify his head with this mass of bandages mm. so that the jaw basically can't move. And then he comes out in the field and starts bowling. And he gets Brian Lara out LBW for four. <laughs> like, I mean, piss off. Like, at this point, that's just unreasonable. Have you broken bones, Adam? Nothing too dramatic. Uh, I, I, I've broken a finger a couple of times. I mean, it's kind of right. uh, it's kind of odd that I that I haven't really, but you, you've got the expertise on, on that matter, don't you? Yeah, I've, I've broken most of them at one point or another. Um, but the thing about a, a break, like a bone break, is that you you can feel it constantly. You don't need to be doing anything. You can be mm. sitting completely still. You could be in a flotation tank and you feel it pulsing, like the pain pulses out of it because every time the, the blood passes through it, you feel it. And then every every slight bump, if you jolt it, if you like, that, you know, when you have broken ribs, if you cough or sneeze or something, it's intensely painful. Imagine trying to run, like running in and then landing on your bowling foot and the impact going through your body, jarring through your body when you've got a freshly broken bone from the day before, I assume it was. Mm. I can't I can't comprehend how you would do that. It would be agonising. But he's just gone, oh, well, bugger it. I'm going to do it anyway. He bowls 14 overs, takes one for 29 at that economy rate of 2.07. And gradually the game starts to slip away. Carl Hooper comes out and bats well and they say, oh, well, we're not going to get anywhere here and they take Kumble off. But Hooper makes a ton, Chanderpool makes a ton, Ridley Jacobs makes a ton, Windy's makes 629 and by the end of it, 
everybody in the Indian team has bowled. Laxman bowls 17 overs. Dravid bowls 9 overs. Wasim Jaffermer bowls 11 overs. <laughs> Shivsundar Das bowls 8 overs. And eventually the keeper, Ajay Ratra, having made 100, is brought out from behind the stumps to bowl an over. 11 players bowl in another Antigua draw, but one where Kumble showed how tough he was. I'd love them to play test cricket at the wreck again, uh, but if it did, I, I suppose I'm aware that <laughs> there was a bad habit of of, uh, of games petering out just like that on on the the pitch that probably had the most runs in it per player in the world there for 20 odd years before it went out of commission and they moved to the Viv Richards Stadium. Um, right, nice one there. Brian R. Kane is next up here, Jeff. Two fifteen. We told a story about a Netherlands bowling average, didn't we? Oh, I know what we did. I know what you did, to be precise. You told the story of uh, Jolette Hartenhoff, uh, who her test bowling average was 21.5. She only played one test match, I reckon, Jeff, and that's mm-hmm. that's why you thought it was noteworthy and you linked it back through because Brian's an American, you know, a Dutch cricket, a bit of a, uh, a bit of a kinship there between them and another associate nation. Uh, have I got that right? I'm remembering it remembering it correctly that's it and also that she had a a really interesting life and went on to become a pilot and there's all these kinds of uh, all these other bits and pieces about Jolette Hartenhoff that I found yes that's right okay and that must be how this all comes together so Brian says it was inspiring hearing uh, the story of the Dutch pace star um, Jolette Zillemans uh, that was uh, that's her married name it's a shame she only played one test but um, that's not my number however I reached out to her on Instagram and shared the show with her and asked her a little bit about her experience. She is a commercial pilot for KLM and asked me about coming to see cricket in the States. So that's pretty cool. They've got a friendship now. That's a very Brian thing to do, by the way. Like I can, I can see him sort of sensing there would be this chance to, uh, to, to bring another wonderful person into his world, and, and so he has. He went on to add in terms of the clue for 2.15. Uh, this match isn't happening in Dubai, but if someone in a bunker might be watching multiple games on screens and adjudicating 21.5, and after a bit of back and forth, I worked out what he was talking about. Law 21.5, the final word law, it could be said, uh, which is about, Fair delivery, the feet. And this goes through every bit about the front foot no ball rule as it's adjudicated in the laws of the game. And by the way, Brian has been a busy boy since we last checked in with him. He worked on, he's an umpire, of course, in America, in New York, to be precise. He officiated 100 games in 2021, including 10 in the minor league cricket, which I suppose is uh, is um, is the, the next step they're trying to develop with a top flight T20 competition. Uh, he worked on field with four current ICC qualified umpires, got weekly training from the head of West Indies umpires, passed the West Indies exam, and he's on the list to do an exchange... Uh, to the Windies when cricket there resumes hopefully after the uh, under-19s World Cup which wrapped up on the weekend so Brian is on the pathway of sorts and I, I've um, uh, put out a couple of feelers for him in England this week as well um, I think this is definitely a campaign that we can all get behind in the final work community Brian is a, a wonderful person we've met him before fully committed to the game found it later in life he's probably our age or thereabouts and now wants to go away and, and become a professional cricket umpire I don't know whether anyone's been been a professional cricket umpire born and raised in America before. I mean, there have probably been Americans who are listed as USA but might have an expat background, but Brian is uh, very much from the States. So, um, yeah, watch this space and, and whatever we can do uh, to support you from the final word, we will. Dream dinner party areas. Imagine if, say, when we go to Amsterdam to watch uh, the Netherlands play, we get Joel at 
to fly us to a game that Brian <laughs> then umpires in, you know, like some sort of like final word charter plane perhaps. Well, well, uh, there's a decent chance, you know, we could pull this off in June because, well, on the Discord page, there are a lot of us now who want to go over for those England one day. I want to go for the first two because they're between test matches so I can make it. Now, we should, now Brian's opened the door, we should try and find a way to have a beer with Joe Lett, provided she's not flying like that day, don't have a beer then. Um, <laughs> uh, but a, a drink with her and talk more about her career. Yeah, leave that with me. Uh, and if you're listening on the Discord page, um, all the more reason to try and uh, get yourself to Holland in June when we can watch a couple of games together. This is Jeremy Coney, and I'm on the final word. All right, uh, Richard Jantz Moore. The number was in Swedish kroner, I think. It was 28.01. Yes. Now, you had that whole digression about whether Jeff Thompson's average had been calculated <sighs> wrongly. 28.005, which you were saying should be rounded up. Is the official line that they don't round, they just go to two digits? Is that, is yeah. that the wisdom line? I mean, this is, this is the devastating part of this. It's that they don't they don't honour the, the usual conventions of rounding, at Wisdom, that is. They just do the first two digits. So, I mean, even if he were a 28.009, you know, mm-hmm. a, a, a tenth of a percentage point away from, or a decimal point away from going up to, to 28.01, even in that scenario, he would still have been 28.00, which to me mm-hmm. feels anti-intellectual. I mean, to me, that just feels... I mean, Lawrence's impression was the reason they set that up was that they don't credit you with something until it's happened. So until you've reached Mm. the next bit, you don't get to claim it, as it were. But I I, I feel like we should be adhering to the usual conventions of rounding, don't you? Well, I, I guess it's it's where you decide where the increment lies. So, you know, effectively that's saying that 28.001 is the same as 28.009, which maybe those things are so small that it is the same effectively. And yeah, and yeah that you don't, you, you can't get penalised for runs you haven't conceded, even if that's 0.001 of a run, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's where, where, they've, where they've landed on it. But still, I, I think there's there's more work to be done there. Maybe maybe I could ask if Crick Info change it up. Mm. Maybe we could do it like a leap year style where, let's say, one year in each hundred, his average goes up to 28.001 <laughs> in order to balance out, you know. Well, I've got to say that. Like, it, I, I stress tested this with Daniel Bredig before getting in touch with Lawrence. And he's like, you know, Daniel's the type of guy who would know that, you know, it's, oh no, it's two decimals. It's not, he just assumed it was a rounding thing. So he's like, yeah, you should get that change with Crick Info and with Wisdom. I'm like, okay, I will. I mean, and all I, and the only reason I cite Dan is that if anyone's going to know that there is a, an antiquated convention, it's probably him, given he worked for <laughs> Crick Info for a decade and he didn't. So there's room to move here. Watch this space. Uh, well, you could say that any meeting of cricket writers is an antiquated convention. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, usually. Um, so Richard's clue reads as follows. He says, my dad is Roger Moore, not that one, which I love. So we have not that Tim Minchin listening to the show, and now we have not that Roger Moore. <laughs> Roger Moore has told me stories about when he was a young man living in Northamptonshire, and he used to play golf with this guy and got on with him very well, but he never really said much about what he was like as a cricketer. From what I can see, he doesn't get dusty old bastard status as he never played international cricket. My dad is now in his 80s and he's blind. And I thought what would be great is for 
for you to do a story time on The Cricketer and I can listen to it with my dad. I'm not sure if the details in here are enough for you to work out which cricketer it is, but hopefully it points you in the right direction. Well, Richard, hello, Richard, hello, Roger. Hello. It was enough and it did point me in the right direction. It pointed me in the direction of Brian Reynolds, a player I didn't know much about until this show either, the sort of player who would be underappreciated because A, he played for Northamptonshire, which is a, a pretty good way to get ignored in English county cricket. B, he was a, a, a solid, stolid opening bat who averaged 28.01. Didn't need to get rounded up because he averaged 28.01. He earned all of those decimals. And a player modest enough that he doesn't even have a bio on Crick Info. He's just got he's just got the stats. He played 426 times for the club in first class cricket, and no one's written him a bio. Bloody hell! Come on, if you want to talk about things to fix on that website, there's there's one. So 426 games for North Ants, three first class games for rep teams, and that was it. Like North Ants through and through, made nearly 19,000 runs, and not just sort of what he did on the field, but he's, when you go through his story, he's the true lifer at either end of the club. He starts when he's a kid in 1950, he plays through until 1970, and then a couple of years later, he starts coaching the seconds team, does that job for over 10 years, then takes a job as the cricket development officer where he's the person who goes out to the, the schools and the, the all over the county and gets people interested in cricket and all of the rest of it. So all up, worked at the club from 1950 until 1997, when he finally retired, lived through until the age of 82 and would have died about five years ago, I think. So notable for a club that never won the championship, they came second twice while he was playing there. They've only come second four times, I think I'm right in saying, and one of those was in 1957 and one was in 1965. And in 1965, it's the time where they're going to win and then there's that dodgy game that you will probably remember, Adam, where Hampshire and Worcestershire are playing. Hampshire declare when they're 147 mm. behind. Worcestershire declare for naught, meaning they've set Hampshire 147 to chase and then Hampshire get bowled out for 31. Um, <laughs> just, uh, just makes you wonder, just makes you ask a few questions, that's all. So Worcestershire won the championship on the basis of winning that game, taking it from Northants, who would have had it um, had they been a draw. So, so close, and yet so far is, is the Northants story all through. But Brian Reynolds stuck with them for 47 years, did everything that was required at the club. He'd be the stand-in wicketkeeper uh, quite often when required. He made 1,500 runs plus in five different seasons in a row at his peak and, uh, you know, just did the job that was required at the top of the order. Uh, I had a look at his last innings because I thought 28.01. I thought, was he under 28 and did he go above it in that last innings? Uh, no, he made six and he made naught, so he dropped from 28.08. <laughs> but he could have made a pair and he would still have been 28 point zero zero two which in <laughs> wisdom would be 28 on the dot 28 clean had he made a pair in his last official match for Northamptonshire but after his last match he still stuck around for another 30 odd years that's lovely 28 point zero one compared to Jeff Thompson's 28 zero zero different disciplines but uh, both had big lives in the game so uh, thank you Richard 
Thank you, Roger, and thank you, Brian. Thank you for the music, the songs we're singing. 2.39 is Dane Hanstead. Uh, for that last week, uh, we had a look at the day that Jason Armberger uh, made 239 in his final year of first-class cricket. The reason we thought it would be this is because it was in Lismore, and Dane has a strong interest in, in rural cricket uh, venues. We've had a couple of Wangaratta answers from him in the past, but um, Dane says, no, not Jason Armberger, but it is Victoria-related. Uh, I'm not sure how often this has happened in first-class cricket, but this particular feat occurred uh, on December the 31st, 1995. I think I've I've unpicked most of this. That there'll be something I'm missing here, but but bear with me, Jeff. But also, when you say to Adam, December 31st, 1995, he'll say, "Oh." That was a Thursday. Uh, I just got a yeah. custard tart. Uh, I just got, you know. Well, just... yeah, I mean, it, it is true to say that I remember listening to um, updates of this game uh, through that, that stretch of time around New Year 95, 96 in my grandparents' bedroom uh, on the radio, which is where I would listen to the ABC. Uh, the one bit of solitude I could get in a, in, a, in a house where there was always people everywhere, I could go and hide off in, in their bedroom uh, with my granddad's radio uh, and, um, and listen to what was going on uh, around the world or around the cricketing world anyway. But it's a beauty, this. So, uh, yeah, Matthew Elliott um, is who he is talking about. And it was the Shield round that spanned the new year. And, yeah, WA bat first at the Wacker and they rattle off 413 for seven as they kind of always did to Victoria over there in that era. Langer, 161 of course. Gilchrist 82 of course. I mean they're such a good team. They're a match winners on every line there. In reply Victoria are all out for 215 but 104 of those not out is Matty Elliott. So he carried his bat for 104 out of 215 opening up. Uh, Bruce Reed in his final season as a state bowler uh, took five for 36 but following on Elliot just keeps cracking on and he rattles off another ton. Uh, so he's carried his bat and made twin tons in the same match. I figure that that's probably what Dane's referring to, although at the same time, I wonder, that, that might have happened a, a bit over the years, but I suppose we'll see. Someone will find that out for us. But the second time around, he had support. Dino makes 70. Uh, the Freak makes 55. Peter Roach, a young Peter Roach, makes 84. Of course, that was the year of the uh, the Peter Roach-Darren Berry saga, which at some point I really, 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 really uh, need to spend a couple of months researching and writing up. Maybe this will be the prompt for that. Elliot's eventually out for 135. So all up, he made 239 uh, runs for the match with his eighth and ninth centuries at first class level. They did well enough to set WA 262, which is no mean feat uh, considering they were following on and, and got to 459 for nine uh, in that second innings. And of course, WA had a dart at it. <laughs> they were set, you know, 262 in 44 overs. But with that batting lineup, why wouldn't you have a dart at it? Um, and it's a great finish too. They get to 238 for eight when hands are shaken. Uh, Troy Corbett was the main destroyer for Victoria, taking four of those eight wickets with his left arm, medium fast, as WA were attacking them. Langer and Moody made runnable 50s. Brendan Julian made 21 from 19. And in the end, it's a young Mike Hussey having to bat out for the draw with the bowlers. So they, 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 they put it away and uh, Hussey just makes the assessment, I've just got to be here at the end. And, and so he is. So they fall, what's that, 238, 262. They're 25 runs away from, well, 24 runs away rather from claiming a, a, an incredible victory, which shouldn't have been that incredible uh, considering uh, how far away they, are, they were ahead in the game. But they were thwarted by Matthew Elliott. And uh, yeah, that, that, that really is shit cricket at its best and surely the game that got Elliot really on the radar uh, to play test cricket as he did uh, from the following summer.
summer, 239, Dane Hanstead. In terms of rarity, uh, like players making twin tons in consecutive innings in the match, like after following on, would have to be pretty rare on its own. But carrying yeah, the point. bat through the first one and then just continuing to bat in the second innings. Yeah. I can't imagine that's happened. No, you know, that'll be, that'll be, it'll be a combination a of those of three things. It'll be, it'll be doing it following on. It'll be carrying the bat. They'll be the bits that, that Dana's referring to. Because I reckon there would have been twin tons where one of them is carrying the bat fairly regularly, but not following on. That That's the extra bit of spice yeah. there. Good point. Maybe that makes it easier because you're just, you're in the groove. You've just made yeah. 100. You just keep going. Yep. Just, all right. Just got a new ball. It's just the second new ball or the third new ball and off you go. Very good. Thank you, Dane. Thank you, Adam. Uh, Jeremy Brown with 96, yes, $96 this was. Uh, And we talked about Ricky Ponting's debut because why not? Uh, uh, Jeremy said, my actual 96 is not so much a single memory as it is 96. Individual memories strung out over a summer that was my last before work meant my days of watching every single ball were over. So this is how I interpreted this, Adam, and tell me tell me if you think this is wrong. I, I okay. think this means a season. I think this means a summer. It's a summer that involves 1996, I reckon. Mm-hmm. And it's probably not 95, 96. It's this, I always get tripped up with this thing with the way that seasons work. It, it, a cricket season in England's easy. You say 2015 Ashes, 2019 Ashes, blah, blah. I, I always hate the, like... 2013 14 2014 15 like the the hyphen it's ugly it, the, you know like this the summer the summer's the summer that starts in that year you know this is this is the summer of 2021 it just happens to end in 2022 the problem the problem you'll have there is that when you're talking about the season of 21 22 that we're in at the moment the Pakistan mm. series that Australia is about to play for example will fit into that mm. now, yeah. h- how would one reconcile that yes Yes, that is not the summer of. Um, but at the same time, you know, I'm quite happy talking about, say, the Women's Ashes of 2017 because they played it in October and thus it doesn't yes. need to be the 2017-18 or the one in the one before that. I think they didn't start until 2014. So, you know, I don't mind splitting them over years when we can. Anyway, I, <coughs> I figured probably not 95-96 because it starts with 95, although that season did feature the Ponting 96 and the Murali Nobles and the, the West. West Indies Tri-Series where Bevan wins the game off the last ball on New Year's Day, which is, I had a look back at that scorecard and it's just, it's still bonkers every time. The fact that Carl Hooper and Bevan both go at about a runner ball to make, Hooper makes 90 odd and Bevan makes, what does he make, 70 or 80, while everybody else is just crawling along. 43 overs aside, 172 for nine, plays 173 for nine. Uh, the only player with a strike rate of 100 was Glenn McGrath with one off one ball. Who so, was who was mad of the match that night? Uh, was it not Michael Bevan? It was not. <laughs> okay. Was it... Was it Carl Hooper? No, it was Paul Rifle. Took three for and <laughs> three for a made thirty odd. They're like, "Fuck it, goes to pistol." <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I don't even think he took three for. I think he took like two for thirty odd off ten. He took an early wicket. I know mm. that he took two or three either way and bowled very Fair economically and, and and made important runs after you know Australia or what five for seventeen or something when Healy comes in and then Rifle takes them most of the way before um before McGrath at the end. But anyway, that's a nice little quirk for you. Fair enough. Bowlers don't get it often enough. Midfielders medal, mm. player of the match award. You know, give it to a fullback. Why didn't Matthew Scarlett win a Brownlow? Tell you what. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> 30 possessions a game for a fullback, not good enough. Get him in the middle. You get three votes every week. Uh, right. 
So, look, all of that happened, but I think it's probably more likely to be the summer of 96, 97, where they play the five tests against the Windies. Australia win 3-2, close series. I mean, it's over by the fourth test, but still close, still a tussle. Curtly Ambrose going nuts in Melbourne. Devon. Prominent again, made in heaven. Mates, 52 in Sydney, 85 not out in Adelaide, 87 mm. not out in Perth, and only played a handful more test matches. Come on. Took 15 wickets at 17 in the series. Yep. Give him a run. Let him play for Australia. Um, what else happened that summer? Pakistan came out. Tasmania beat them by an innings in a first-class game, their only first-class game on tour, and then they played the one-day try series, and they knocked Australia out of the finals. This bizarre series where Pakistan couldn't beat the Windies, uh, lost to them three times, but Australia couldn't beat Pakistan, lost to them three times and then Pakistan managed to beat the Windies in the last group game and qualified for the finals and then pasted them in straight sets. Um, <laughs> it's classic stuff. Uh, Lara made two tons and a 90 in consecutive innings in that tri-series, player of the series and that was pretty much the green screen for Mark Taylor who Played four more one-day games uh, overseas, dropped himself for the last match in England in '97, and selectors never gave him the job back after that. A bit. It was the start of the. Uh, it was yeah. It was the start of the um uh, the the divided squads. Remember how controversial mm-hmm. that was? They're going to have a one-day squad and a test squad. What is this? Crazy. That, that was the. Uh, that's that's where it began. Easiness. Yeah. So I, I I feel like there was enough in that '96-7 summer that that might have been. A summer that Jeremy Brown was absorbed in, it's long enough ago that yep. that, that might have been the last summer where he watched every ball in 96-7 when the Windies were good in Australia for the last time. And just as a final footnote, remember how they came out in 2000 and got smashed 5-0 and never mm-hmm. got another five-test series? It's kind of funny that no one ever suggests doing that with the Ashes, really. No administrator would countenance it, even no matter how, no matter how bad the series is. Anyway... Yeah, that, that's true. It, it has definitely been countenance before uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s, but you're right. It's only really becoming a conversation again now um, that we've had so many poor series in Australia in a row. I, I don't think it was kind of on the agenda between 2002 and, and 2015, but yeah. Well, 19 is obviously a very good series, but I hope it doesn't go to, to three or four. No, no, I, I don't either, but I, just, I find it, Interesting how decisively, after years and years and years of great Windies series, they had one pasting and they were like, no, nah, that's it. You guys yeah, get two tests, bad. It was just bad timing, wasn't it? They, they, they had a bad series just when they were winding series back from five to four or three. Like, it's just the timing was abysmal on, on their part to, to get shit at the wrong time. Anyway, okay, Jeremy, again, thanks for your wonderful contribution and uh, being such a great supporter of what we're doing on the final word there. Uh, next here we've got uh, Julian King. Right, so Julian King sent through 382. I went into the, the details of the big off spinner, Alan Oakman, who was um, cap 382 and played two test matches for England back in uh, the summer of 1956, two Ashes test matches. He was the third spinner uh, in the um, in the Laker match at, at Old Trafford. Uh, great answer, but not right. Proximity to the venue of the vaccine game is important, but you might have to cross an ancient boundary. 
and he um, he also gave me the hint that I'd, I'd be looking at the shorter form of the game. And it didn't take long to arrive at the fact that we must be talking about uh, the day that Andrew Simons went nuts at Beckenham in the first year of the of the T20 back in in 2003. He did so against Hampshire. He made 96 not out from 37, and they chased down 147 in 12 overs um, against Wesley Macram, so if you don't mind, who was playing for, for Hampshire <laughs> that year. Earlier, Hampshire had Simon Kadich making a, a rapid 59 not out, and it was just kind of a reminder to me, looking at that scorecard, what an Aussie invasion it was in England back in 03. In that era, full stop, but they, they permitted extra overseas players for the blast, what wasn't called the blast, and it was called, I don't even remember what it was called anymore, it was just the first year of the T20, it was the birth of T20. But yeah, Ian Harvey, we spoke about him making the first century a couple of weeks ago. I mean, Cameron White went nuts, Andrew Simons, Brad Hodge made a century, I'm pretty sure. Um, Greg Blewett was out there as well with Andrew Simons when they hit the winning runs. He was the other overseas player for Kent in that competition. It was all played in June. It was all played in a few weeks. There might be something in this. There might be something in this, playing it all in the space of a few weeks and all being played in the same month uh, in June. And by the way, I remember when that competition was uh, inaugurated and, and played for the first time. Being on the Victor Trumpet cricket board, I caught up with uh, Alan Edgar off there on, on the weekend, actually, and, and and people going feral about this, you know, I, I, I think that the, 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 the thread for the T20 was come and see the bearded lady, you know, which is the old sort of thing about coming to see the carnival. That's how people interpreted T20 at the start. Just a little historical reminder when people go feral about the 100 that, you know, I get the arguments about the 100, no no doubt, that we've already got a shorter form and all the rest, but this would have been the same cohort of people who was crying bloody murder over the T20 when it started in 2003, make no mistake. Anyway, a digression. But then I couldn't square what Beckenham and 382 had to do with one another. So I went back to Julian and said, you know, do us a favour. What are we talking, is it a strike rate? Is it a run rate? Is it an economy rate? What is it? And he said, no, actually, you've got the wrong game altogether. Together. I'm like, what? <laughs> what? I got a bit too in the weeds here and, and I thought we must have been talking about T20 when in fact we were talking about the championship. I misunderstood his clue. It was the 382 put on by Sean Dixon and Joe Denley at Beckenham for Kent in a county game in, in 2017. Uh, Dixon made 318 of those, which is the highest score for Kent uh, since World War II. And, and Honest Joe made uh, 182. They took it from 129 for one to 511 for two before Kent declared at 7.01 for seven. Uh, Dixon was 14 runs away from Bill Ashdown's uh, record for Kent, which was 332 against Essex in, in 1934. He was a, a South African that came over to play for Kent. He, weirdly for someone who had that had that in him, he didn't really kick on. He's been at Durham the last couple of years and and really struggled barely playing first-class cricket. I, I suppose he's, he's young enough if he's good enough. He's only... 30 or 31, but he he did have that magical day back in 2017 at Beckenham, across the ancient border, not far from Dulwich, where they had that huge partnership of 382, Dixon and Denley. Diamond Joe Denley. Uh, I've got this 418 from Ed Fowler. Now, this, this, this was complicated because initially there was a clue about having to round up there was a clue about Sisyphus, and I got into this with Daniel Norcross about the, uh, the the mythological character who has to roll a boulder up to the top of a mountain for eternity and then watch it roll back down again. Then Ed, as a clue, just changed the number to 247 um, and then followed it up by saying, the English David Hussey. And I thought, 
Well, you're probably better placed to answer this, Adam, than me. But I, you know, this I got allocated this one in in the grab bag, and I, you can you can set me straight if I'm wrong here. But if anybody is the English David Hussey in the sort of contemporary environment, it's got to be James Hildreth, definitely. In the sense yeah. of the the player with uh, a comparatively really good first class record, lots of runs, the one who should have played and somehow didn't, somehow missed the connection somehow wasn't quite there at the right time or whatever it is. Yeah. So I, I've got 418 and I've got 247 and I have to link them to James Hildreth. 247 I can do. 247 catches in first class cricket for James Hildreth. 418 isn't there. Added up all his catches across formats, that's 401, not 418. First class batting average is 41.3, not 41.8. Now, I know we've discussed the conventions of rounding on this show a bit. (laughs) I don't think there's any way that you can round up 41.3 to 41.8. Well, I've I've got a theory on how this might have happened. So Hildreth had a lean season last year and the year before. Uh to be honest. Uh, he's had two modest oh. campaigns back-to-back. I wonder whether when the pledge was sent through, it might have been 41.8, and by the time... Oh, it could have been... The season came to an end. Champo in September Well, they so played on. in October this year, didn't we? So yeah. I, I reckon that it's possible that this pledge might have came in in September. Remember okay. that they got rolled by Lanks in, was it a day and a half, or maybe... A, they, they, they had a bad, bad day at the end of the year. In fact, a dreadful second half of the season, and, and Hildreth was part of that. So um, he's just got a contract extension, I think, for 12 more months. He's 36 or 37 now, but the David Hussey comparison holds, no doubt. I must admit, I didn't realise until recently just how prolific David Hussey was at first-class level. It's remarkable to think that he never got the chance to play, but uh, a victim of his era, I suppose. And it's less the case with Hildreth. Hildreth isn't like, as you say, his batting average, 40. 41.3 or 41.8. It isn't like, you know, it's a absolute outrage that it never happened. He's just, his timing was bung. He would make big runs when England were good and he was lean yep. when England were looking. Mm. But, you know, I mean, it's still anyone in the 40s would be... You think, oh, you think grateful be, now, yeah. Kind of falling on their neck, um, yes. The way things are at the moment, that's that's not exactly a given. Okay, well that that's that's what I'm going to speculate. Then um, Ed is that forty one eight is what he used to be, and forty one three is what he is now. Uh, time marches on. Uh, Chris Unwin is our next one up. It's four fifty four. Adam, uh, it's you were working out how many people were at all of Shane Watson's 100s <laughs> or were you working out how many people were at Shane Watson's 100 in Mahali? Uh, was it 454? I think, it, I think yeah, sure. it was It was somehow I linked it back to 454, but you're right. I worked out the cumulative, the cumulative number that would have seen what I make 100 in test cricket and it's a, a fairly dismal number. It's a fairly, fairly distressing number actually. So, And somehow 454 worked into that. Maybe it was 45,400 or something when we put them all together. No, the, the um, sad thing was it wasn't even that. But anyway, yeah, it was very Watto adjacent. So Chris says, it is Lancashire related, as you surmised, and 1990s. Jim Bowen, as he so often tends to be, is the key. Uh, what he is famous for presenting in the UK, particularly its diminutive nickname for the show. Now, before you leap into this, Adam, so this is this is the guy who did the darts shows in the, yes. in the 80s and 90s which was called Bullseye, I just coincidentally saw, I can't remember who it was, but some some account on Twitter had posted something up saying, uh, 
you know when you book a hotel and they have the little box that says, um, "Do you have any special requirements for the room?" <laughs> and this guy was like, "I want to see. I wanted to see if anyone reads this." And so he'd written in the special in the in the requirements box, "We need to have a photo of Jim Bowen from Bullseye in the room." <laughs> <laughs> and he posts this up saying, "Fair fucks to them. They did read it because they'd printed out and laminated a big picture of Jim Bowen and put it on the bedside table with a dartboard, <laughs> looking very." pleased with himself so oh. uh, what do you know three days later here's Jim Bowen on our show imagine if that were your kink as well I'd have seen a picture of Jim Bowen in every room <laughs> on the roof ideally <laughs> it's the only way I can get close anymore <laughs> I don't need mirrors I need I need Jim Bowen I need bullseye he presented that show through yeah as you say the 80s and the 90s so I was thinking you know based on that the diminutive nickname for the show the arrows um, who, or who threw darts um, or arrows um, I was thinking initially for a Lancashire spinner who took maybe 454 wickets. But no, let's try a different measure. And where we got to was uh, the economy rate of 4.54 and kept working through it, kept working through it. Ian Austin, yes, an unlikely sporting figure, as Lawrence Booth described him on his Crick Info profile, because <laughs> he's you know, a, a little bit tubby, shall we say, but vital to much of Lancashire's white ball success in that glory era that we detailed with Wazim Akram a couple of weeks ago and referenced a little while ago today, um, re Sam Ashworth's uh, number. He batted as you'd expect he would. He gave it a whack. He was quite useful. He would have been very wealthy, I suppose, in T20 cricket, being a, a seamer who was very accurate and, and didn't go for many runs who could who could clout it as he did. But his medium paces were his main weapon and he took 363 list day wickets at, at 28. Uh, he was part of that white ball double in 1998 for Lanx where they won both trophies. He got himself into the Wisden Five as a result of that and also got himself into the England white ball team, which was then, of course, just the one-day team it was the World Cup year at home and he was in the starting 11 against Sri Lanka at Lords in that curtain raiser. Uh, he picked up two for 25 against Sri Lanka, but weirdly, and I don't quite know why this was the case, he only played one more game and that was against Kenya, which they won as well. So he played in two wins and, and that was that and all up nine one-day internationals. But yeah, often he's a little bit of a punchline when people talk about the 99 World Cup. They're like, oh yeah, the 99 World Cup where Ian Austin opened the bowling. I'm like, yeah, like where they won their first two games and he bowled you know effectively and economically at Lords and I don't know what his figures were against Kenya but they won that game of cricket all up as I say nine one day internationals took six wickets at 60 but as Chris points out a measure that really matters is the economy rate and 4.54 even in 1999 money is, is pretty handy the nice postscript for Ian Austin is when he um, finished playing professionally in the early 2000s he didn't just go back to league cricket he went all the way back down the pyramid before finishing his playing days at his actual home club like you and Chatfield, who we were talking about a couple of weeks ago. And I like the fact that whenever Mike Atherton's talking about Lancashire, as he often does on, on commentary, he did quite a bit on radio with us during the summer, he never fails to name check uh, Ian Austin. He always mentions him on the way through when when referring to that, that glory era they had uh, through the 90s and, and all those trophies they won. So yes, that will be the 454 for Chris Unwin, who's been a, a pleasure many times on Lanks, much like Sam Ashworth. And maybe we should get those two together for a beer at some point. <laughs> They start their own podcast. Yes. Uh, seeds, the seeds that go out into the, the universe. I don't know. It's late. It's very late. It is. Uh, Mark Stein with $3.45. Now, I talked about Charlie McCartney because, of course, I did, who made 345 in a day uh, while touring 
England uh, against Nottinghamshire back in the 1920s, I want to say. Um, a bit, bit earlier than that, but yeah, I think you're right. I think it might have been, uh, might have been a... Might have been, I'm trying to think, when did Charlie McCartney make his... Anyway, he had a long career. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Mark said, uh, for a clue, I would say it was good timing that my number came up in the episode it did, given the way the Sydney test almost ended with a part-timer bowling at the death. Oh, OK. This isn't 3.45. This is 3.45. 3.45, meaning 3.45. Uh, 3 for 5 is what Michael Clark took at the end of the 2008 uh, test match against India. Another Anil Kumble story coming up. Uh, it was also 3 in 5. It was 3 in 5 deliveries. You'll remember this test if you were watching it because it was pretty memorable. Uh, India trying to bat out a draw. Dhoni and Kumble bat together for 20 overs towards the end and uh, the point that Dhoni gets out there's about 11 overs to go so India they should make it they should get through there Dhoni's leg before to Simons uh, Kumble's faced 72 balls to this point and he farms the strike really well for the next eight or nine overs soaks up most of the bowling picks up threes or ones um, Harbhajan's facing one ball here or there so Clark bowls one over that Kumble faces and you know he doesn't seem to scared about what Michael Clark's doing. Simon's bowls an over that Kumble faces all of, but he doesn't get the single. He just blocks out all six, two overs to go, and then Clark gets one to jump up. Harbhajan edges it to slip. RP seeing LBW next ball. Hattrick doesn't happen, but Ishant Sharma edges to slip three balls later, all out, three and five balls, seven deliveries from safety, uh, 11 balls for Clark, three for five. Lovely stuff. Thank you, Mark, for uh, taking us back to 3.45. And I think this might be our last number of the lot here. It's Mel Shawley uh-huh. and our 6.43. Jeff, we said, well... We instinctively said 643 minutes for Atherton against South Africa. It's got to be 1995. Mel Shawley. She was, she was probably there. She, in fact, I, I, I would be staggered if she wasn't there. She's one of the the great cricket tourists, Mel. But we were wrong. Well, this was this was bizarre. Um, but Mel has answered this one for us. Um, she has solved this number for us. Uh, she says this is not a celebratory pledge. Quite the opposite. And then she tells us a story. This is in the voice of Mel Shawley. It's 1990, and I'm in Melbourne for the second test in a row. England have taken a first innings lead. Unfortunately, at Brisbane, that resulted in a 10-wicket loss, and we thought that was going to be the worst of it. But no, everything was going along nicely in the second innings. Two for 103, four for 147, and then, and she's just inserted the scream emoji about 20 times, I always chuckle when people talk about England batting collapses nowadays. You think that was a collapse? (laughs) It may also explain why I never relax when it looks for all money like we've got it in the bag. However, even after that debacle, Angus Fraser took two wickets before stumps, so we were still full of the perennial hope overnight and had a brilliant evening singing and dancing in the Duke of Wellington. Suffice to say that hope was completely unfounded as the next day we sat while Daddy Marsh and David Boone rubbed our noses in it. Happy days. Yeah, I think Mel's got a book in her at some point because she's seen some things across a, a long sort of time touring with, with, with England cricket and she's coming to Holland with us as well for that one day trip. So if you want to hear some tales, uh, get on that trip and, and hang out with Mel. It, it's a very clever number because, yeah, 643, 6 for 3, sort of in, in keeping with the theme of the previous 345, 3 for 5. Well, here that is as well. So Bruce Reed, total carnage. Gooch and Larkins, 50 apiece, 102 for one at one stage. 
stage. Effectively 148 for one with that lead. They banked from the first innings, but yeah, but once Reed gets Gooch, uh, I think that was third slip from memory with Terry Alderman there. Uh, then Robin Smith, uh, and then Mo Matthews gets Gower, who slaughtered a ton the first time around. From that point forward, from number four down, it's a telephone number, 8008-1001. In fact, that, that's, that's nice and symmetrical, isn't it? 8008-1001. There you go. Uh, with Phil Tufnell, who we've mentioned uh, already once today, he's not out down the other end on zero. Um, the six for three uh, included Bruce Reed, who took seven for 51 uh, to make 13 for the match, and, and Greg Matthews took the other three, so they took all 10 between them. Uh, I remember listening to that uh, collapse as we were packing up our childhood house uh, in Lock Road in, in North Dandenong. I would have been six before we moved to Endeavour Hills uh, a couple of days later. So that, that I remember hearing wicket after wicket as Dad was packing up the boxes and, and kind of not quite believing what I was hearing. But, but there you go. You know, I didn't quite appreciate the sort of the drama of the of the turnaround, though, the fact that England had uh, this first innings lead. And in the end, Australia, as Mel points to, comfortably chased down 197 to win by eight wickets. Marsh, 79 not out. Boone, 94 not out. And instead of being one all going to Sydney, it, it's 2-0. And, you know, well, we all know how that goes. Um, Reed would do it again the next year at the MCG as well against India with 12 more. I looked up his MCG stats. Reed at Melbourne, four matches for 35 wickets at 13.5. Have that. Sorry, Mel. The uh, the funny thing is that you didn't actually have to leave that house for another month, but your dad wanted to go early to meet the traffic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, it's kind of, that house was around the corner from from VFL Park too. So that that was over our back fence. It was about uh, well, as a kid, I don't, it felt like it was around the corner. It was probably a kilometre down the road to where the Jackson's Road uh, turnoff was on the on the freeway. So it's about the distance that Dad would leave when we were at VFL Park, wanting to get back to Endeavour Hills through so many painful afternoons in my childhood. Uh, Jeff, that is the end of the monstery visit. So I'm looking at my recorder. We've been recording for over an hour and a half. So um, thanks in advance to DC for editing all of this back. And uh, and we should say goodbye because, Jeff, it's, it's 4 a.m. Uh, where you are right now. Commitment to the cause as always. That's a full day uh, in the spreadsheets from you. Uh, thank you to our friends at Woodstock Cricket. 20% off, 20% off TFW20 by visiting woodstockcricket.co.uk. In fact, spoiler alert, uh, she won't know. She's a baby. They're making Winnie a bat for her second birthday this weekend as we speak. Bless them. Brick Lane, uh, who you heard about off the top, they're doing great things. Visit them at Queen Victoria Market or at their brewery in Dandenong. We love them. We'll have a new offer code coming soon. I've said that a couple of times but for real this time bricklanebrewing.com is their website get yourself some of the good stuff there thank you to the team uh, that support us at Bad Producer Productions not least to the aforementioned Dave Collins who is our editor Uh, that's it from us Jeff get some sleep I'll do the same uh, and we'll come back tomorrow for our weekly show which will be not all about Justin Langer but mostly about Justin Langer. This has been story time on The Final Word. Uh, we'll do it all again later in the week and uh, thanks for listening. Bye. So you know what I, meant here. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself and there's some stories I can tell you Thanks for listening to the Final Word Cricket Podcast. All of Adam and Jeff's previous episodes are available at finalwordcricket.com, including Storytime 20. That's 40 story times ago. 40. Almost a year's worth of nerd pledge. Why Storytime 20? Because it features comedian Will Anderson. It's a great chat. I think you're going to love it. Finalwordcricket.com for all things Final Word. And thanks once again to our friends at Brick Lane Brewing.
Shop online at bricklanebrewing.com. Thanks for listening. More from Adam and Jeff real soon.